Well, today we begin this series, Claims, and I'm really, really excited for this series. But to get us started, I need to tell you that over the last few months, unfortunately, Jalen and I have become incredibly well acquainted with our local body shop. For cars, that is, although, I mean, I'm, cer I'm certain that I could use a tune-up. Um, we unfortunately had some damage done to our Highlander while I was driving back from performing a funeral in El Paso. Um, at the end of October, car in front of me on I-10 kicked up something, uh, and it scratched my hood and broke the windshield pretty badly. So it took it took a month to get the vehicle in for repairs because shops were overbooked, and then it took three weeks to do the work and get the vehicle back. Um, and and so that was that was the first time we ended up in the body shop. Four days after we got it back, Jalen was driving down the road and was hit by a driver who randomly decided to pull a U-turn while driving down the middle of the road, and they ran smack into Jalen. Uh, and as I record this sermon, our vehicle is currently still in the shop uh, doing repairs from that accident that took place back in December. Now, anyway, I bring all of that up because through all of that, we have as a family become very aware of how it works when you have to file something called a claim. A claim. Now, if you've ever been in an accident and had to file an insurance claim, would you just right now, would you like this video? Look at all these bad drivers liking the video right now. It's fantastic. Like, look, like all of us accident havers. Isn't it a terrible feeling like when you have to call into your insurance company? Like, isn't that just the worst feeling in the world? And if you're in that accident, you know when you call in to report the accident, what they do on their end is they open a claim. And when they open a claim, there's a few things that they're ultimately working to do. Now, it, it, there's, there's a few things the insurance company will check out in regard to any claim. Number one is they're going to determine what you mean. They're going to determine what you mean. Like when you say you were in an accident, what happened to cause the, like, like, did, like you were like, were you just driving down the road and someone hit you? Were you partially at fault? Were they completely at fault? Were you completely at fault? Like, what does it mean when you say you were in an accident? Did you get in an accident or did you cause an accident? Was, was there no one to, was it was it like me driving down the road and there's no one to blame someone just, you know, kick something up and it destroyed destroyed the windshield like what was like what do you mean when you say you got in an accident number 2 is they're going to analyze the report so is the story feasible or true you know they'll collect actual police report if it exists that they want to they want to determine if whether what you're telling them if the story that you've told if the story that the other people have told they want to determine if the story that you're telling is possible or feasible? Like, could it actually have happened the way that you're saying it happened? Number three is they're going to investigate the scene. Like, they're, they want to know, is there a larger story? Is there a larger context to what happened? You know, were there contributing factors? Was it icy? Was there a storm? Were you texting while you were driving? Is there is there a larger story that's obvious? Is there data from the car that could be collected? Were there hazards that led to the incident? Or was it just human failure? Number four is they're going to collect multiple accounts. They're going to try to hear from everyone involved. They're going to determine if there are conflicts between the accounts or if the story is the same from each perspective. This is also why they get the police report because the police talk to everybody who, anybody and everybody who was involved. When I was driving on I-10 and something just flew up and hit my windshield, they said, was there a police report filed? I'm like, I was driving 75 miles an hour down the, on, on a highway, and I just was glad that I didn't die, that, that the windshield didn't shatter. I wasn't even thinking of stopping to file a police report. I was five minutes from my house. I just drove home, and then I called you. And they're like, but they, they want to talk to as many people as, as possible because they want to know, and from different perspectives, from different accounts, was the story actually true? And, and here's the thing that you, you know and I know. When the insurance company is, is doing all of that, what they're ultimately trying to do and what they're trying to determine when they do all that is, is they're trying to answer two, two basic questions. What does this all mean? 
you know, what, what happened? Was there a context? Like, how did this happen? What, you know, all of that. And what happens now because of all of that? Like, like what happens now? Like who pays for it? Who's at, who's, who's at fault? Whose insurance is covering it? Who's like, what happens now? Do we got to get it in for repairs? Are they like, are they going to take the, take the payout for what the things would cost, but they're not going to get like, what happens now because of that? What happens now because of the claim? What happens next because of that claim? Now today, you didn't come here to, to hear about insurance companies and how they operate, but the reason that's so important to understand as we begin this series is that when Jesus walked the earth, and specifically during his three and a half years of, ministry, of public ministry on the earth, Jesus made some wild claims about himself. Like absolutely wild claims, claims that if Jesus made them to an insurance company today or to an attorney or to an officer at the scene of an incident, they would be absolutely confused about what he was saying or absolutely convinced that he was insane because no one would make those claims about themselves. No, no one would, th these claims were so wild that no one would make them about themselves. He, like that, that, that here, here's the claim, like he made claims about his identity. You know, that who he was, like he actually claimed to be the son of God. He claimed to be the savior of the world. He, the, like these, he made claims about his identity. He made claims about his origin, that he actually was the son of God sent from God, that while he was a man walking the earth, that somehow he was also the son of God sent from God into the world, claims about his origin. And he made some claims about his purpose, what he was ultimately on the earth to accomplish. And, and, and like, and those claims were so wild that again, if you knew someone who made those claims today, or chance, if you had been around when Jesus was making those claims in his day, you would have been absolutely con confused about what he was claiming and why he was claiming them, or you would have been absolutely convinced that he was insane. And amazingly, seven of these claims were recorded by John in his gospel account of Jesus' life. And for the next few weeks, I'm going to do my best to serve as a claims agent as we examine the things that Jesus claimed to be true about himself. You know, what did he mean by his claims? Did other people agree with what he claimed? When we talked to all other people who experienced his life and, and were on the other side of his life, did they agree with what he claimed? Did it seem like it was realistic or feasibly true to make that kind of claim about himself? Because if his claims weren't true, this is this is really the driving you know theme of the of the entire series. Why it's so important to talk about this stuff. If his claims weren't true, honestly, like Jesus could kind of just be ignored, because because who cares what else he said if he wasn't who he claimed to be, from where he claimed to be from, or here for the reasons he said he was here for. But if Jesus was who he says he was and was from where he said he was from, and was here to do everything that he said he was here to do, nothing in the history of the world has ever mattered more. That's how big these claims are and how much they should matter to us. And so for the next few weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to talk about who and what and where he was from that Jesus claimed to be. These seven claims come from the Gospel of John, and so so today we're going to look at look at one of the one of these claims. This isn't the very first claim he made about himself. He's going to go in a little bit of a random order, but in John chapter eight, we get a claim that Jesus made about himself. And to give just a little bit of context about this, because the context, the surroundings, you know, what what was happening around it. Is there a larger story? Is there a larger context? This matters to the story. In the context right before Jesus' claim, in John chapter seven, Jesus is at the is is, is talking and ministering. And 
and in public ministry during the Festival of Shelters, the Jewish Festival of Shelters. This is where they commemorated God's provision and protection as people were delivered from Egypt. When God became, like when one of the, when one of the miraculous stories is that God became the light in the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, that God that the God, this God that they barely knew other than that they that he had rescued them from slavery in Egypt, that this God served as the light that led them out of slavery and toward freedom and toward the place where the covenant would be established. This was 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 the was the was the context of of what was happening right before Jesus said what what he said. This this is where he was. This is what was going around going on around it. It was at the festival of shelters. At the beginning of John chapter 8, then is the story that many of us are so familiar with, is the woman who's caught in adultery, where, where, where the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders, they drag this woman out while she's caught in adultery. Interestingly enough, they didn't drag the man out. That's, you know, that's pretty well. They drag the woman out. They put her in front of Jesus, and they're hoping that Jesus' compassion will take over and that he will choose to excuse this woman's sin. They said, the law says what we need to do to this woman, that we should stone this woman. We, so so we're, we're hoping we catch you in a, in a, in a catch-22 that, that your compassion will take over and you'll excuse this woman's sin sin. And Jesus does not excuse the, her, her sin. He stands between the woman and the people with the stones. He says, I'm okay with you stoning her so long as he who is without sin casts the first stone. And one by one, they drop their stones. They drop their stones. He doesn't excuse her sin. He shines the light back onto their sin. That if they're going to cast the stones, they better not be guilty of any sin themselves. And then he turns to the woman after everyone walks away, after everyone drops their stones. He says, where are your accusers? And she says, they're, 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 where, you know, where are your accusers? Where are those who have, who have condemned you? And she says, they're all gone. And he says, well, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And that's the last thing Jesus said before he says what he says next. In John chapter 8, verse 12, we're told this. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Now, can you imagine anyone saying that today? Like, could you, if, if I were sitting here today and into the camera, you're looking into, into your living room right now or your bedroom, wherever it is that you're watching on your patio, you would you know, stream it on YouTube, stream it on Facebook. And I looked into the camera and without reading the words of Jesus, I just claimed about myself. I, there's one let you know, I'm Chris. And I am the light of the world. It's an incredibly, incredibly, I mean, just like larger than life claim. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus, this is the first claim that we're going to talk about. Jesus claimed to be the light of the world. Can you believe it? Jesus claimed to be the light of the world. And additionally, Jesus added some clarity to what he meant by that, that, that he had a light that, that came from with him, that his life was the light of the world and that he in and of himself and by his life was so much light that anyone walking with him would never walk in darkness. That in a dark world, 
that in a confusing world, that in an unclear world, that in a world that's clouded by, by so much of sin and shame and guilt and by, 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 let's be honest, our own conscience that's so full of guilt and shame and sin and darkness and confusion, that in the world that's so clouded by all of that, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And when you walk with me, when you follow me, you will never again walk in darkness. You will never again know the darkness because you walk with me. That is a bold claim to make about yourself. And this bold claim would not go unchallenged. In verse 13, we're told this, the Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Now, by this point, there were many miracles and there was mounting evidence that pointed to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah sent by God, that Jesus was the promised Messiah. I mean, there had been miracle after miracle after miracle. There was another one and another one and another one and then another one on the way. Like there, like, like there was all kinds of miracles. There was mounting evidence that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah sent by God. The Pharisees should have seen it and should have understand, understood who Jesus was because it was their job to recognize and point to the Messiah whenever the Messiah arrived. That was the job of the Pharisees. And these guys, instead of seeing it and embracing it and opening their arms to him and pointing the way to him, they challenge him over and over and over again. Now, and, and, and so it, like we, we, we want to go, well, why would they, like, it, how did they miss it? They missed it because every time Jesus, every time they tried to figure out who Jesus was and what Jesus was up to, Jesus ended up challenging their idea of God. And because their idea of God didn't line up with, was, was confronted by Jesus' challenges, they didn't like Jesus. They didn't like Jesus very much. And so they had decided that despite all of the evidence, despite everything they had seen, Jesus couldn't be who he was claiming to be. Now, so we, we want to go, oh, these are just bad guys. But at the same time, I, I can't blame them too much in this moment because they're doing what a good claims agent does. Well, you can't just say that about yourself. Who, like, you've got to have, like, there's, like, you can't, that's such a big claim. You can't just say that about yourself. You've got to have some witnesses. You've got to have someone else who's testifying about it. So in verse 14, Jesus answered, even if I testify, testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and where I am going. He's like, they're, and, and they're sitting there like, that still isn't someone else. You're saying your testimony is so true and so faultless that we should just believe it because you said, he said, no, no, I'm saying it because I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. I know where, like, I'm like Cotton Eye Joe. Where did I come from? You, you don't know where I came from. You don't know where, but I, but I know. I know where I came from, and I know where, I get, where I'm going. He says, but you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. And then he says this in verse 15, you judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. He said, look, you, you look at my life and you're judging by your own human sins. You're not judging me by the prophetic words about me. You're not judging me by what, by what Moses wrote about me, what Abraham said about me, like what, what everyone who has believed in a Messiah who would someday go. You're not judging me by what they said. You're judging by a human standard that no one could and no one ever will meet. You are being, you, you, you are judging off of a human standard, but I 
I pass judgment on no one. And I'm going to un- try to unpack this statement quickly, but it's a, it's a big one. Jesus came to judge no one. I mean, this is why Jesus stood between an angry mob and a woman caught in adultery and said, I do not condemn you. No judgment, no condemnation. And if I stopped there, every one of you would be like, oh, we got to find a new church because he doesn't believe Jesus came to judge. Like, like scripture says that one day Jesus will judge the living and the dead. And Jesus, like, he said, Jesus said, I judge no one. And with his life, he showed that he judged no one. So someday he will. And someday there will be a judgment that will come for everyone living and dead, everyone who has ever lived in this world. But Jesus said, I came to judge no one, but... Jesus also came to establish the standard by which everyone would would eventually be judged by God. Jesus came to judge no one, but Jesus came to establish the standard by which everyone would one day be judged by God. This is why Jesus says, I do not condemn you, but also says to the same woman, go and sin no more. In other words, I have given you freedom from guilt and shame. Will you live in the freedom that I've given you? And will you follow me away from your sin that has destroyed you? This is such a big deal. Jesus came to judge no one, but he also came to be the standard by which everyone would one day be judged. See, the standard God would use to judge every person from this moment forward was simple. Are you with Jesus? That's the standard for all the rest of time for everyone who lives this side of Jesus. Are you with Jesus? See, this is one of the reasons that religious people, and by that I mean people with a bent toward religion and rules and restrictions. And I know none of us wants to admit that we have a bent, that we like rules and that we like restrictions and that we like religion and that we like the repetition. We like None of us wants to admit that, but let's be honest. I'm one of them. I know we exist out there. I know the reason religious people get a bad name is not because of religion itself. It's because we like the religious side of it. We don't love the spiritual side of it. We love the religion side of it. We love the rules side of it. We love the restrictions keep some people outside of it. We love the the, the, the things that keep people far away and that we get to be in and other people get to be out. This is why religious people, people with that bent towards the religious side of things that had and always have had such a difficult time with Jesus. There's no rules. There's no regulations. There's no restrictions. It's simply freedom and follow. It's freedom and follow. It's I purchased your freedom. I gave you freedom from that. I I stood between you and judgment. I stood between you and condemnation. I stood and I took the punishment for you. I stood and took the consequence for I didn't stand. I went to a cross and took the punishment for you. And now I'm not giving you a list of rules and regulations and restrictions and repetition things that you should be a part of. I'm just simply asking you to follow me. It's freedom and it's follow. It's not religion, it's not rules, it's not restrictions, it's not repetition. It's freedom 
and follow. If Jesus has purchased our freedom from guilt and sin and shame and death and hell and the grave and the constant, the natural and the consequences of our sin, and he doesn't free us from that to send us into another restricted rules-based life, he says, now I just, I simply call you to follow me and to go where I go and to do what I do and to walk where I walk and to walk in my shoes and to do your best job of imitating me in the world that you live live here and now and don't return to your sin or what harms you or what harms anyone else one more time. The, the standard that Jesus came to set was a standard where judgment and condemnation were ultimately up to God. And the standard by which we would all be evaluated, is: are we with Jesus? Have we lived in his freedom and are we following him? Freedom. I judge and condemn no one because that's not my purpose. I came to set you free from sin, guilt, shame, and condemnation. Follow, meaning I'm the new standard. Are you walking with me and are you following my lead? Perhaps not ironically. Does that not sound exactly like, like what God instituted at the beginning of creation? With, with, with the garden and the perfection of the garden, the perfection of a perfect relationship with God and perfect clarity in our relationship and connection with God. Like where, you, the, and, and God created mankind and, and womankind and he set them in the garden of Eden. There's freedom. You can go anywhere you want. You can eat anything. There's just one rule. I want you to avoid that one tree in the, in the middle of the garden. I want you to trust me enough to, that, to know that if I'm, if I'm keeping it from you, it's because it will destroy you. It's freedom. And it's will you trust me enough to follow me? Walk with me and trust with me. Freedom and follow. Freedom and follow. Coincidentally, the reason I think that John 7 context is so important. What had God done for the Israelites? What relationship did they have at the beginning of the relationship where God established and called the people and set the people free from Egypt? There was freedom. He had given them freedom. He had purchased. He had won their freedom over the Egyptians. He had won their freedom. There was freedom. And now he's simply walking, he's simply leading them as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, as the light of the world, as the light that they can follow. It's freedom and follow. All they knew in the, in the beginning and all they knew at the beginning of the nation of, of, of Israel's escape from Egypt at the, as their beginning as a nation was freedom and follow. My friends, this is what we're called to, to, to live in as followers of Jesus. We live in his freedom. We follow where he leads. Now, Jesus went on in verse 16. He says this, but if I do judge, my decisions are true because I'm not alone. He's like, he's like I'm, I'm not alone in what I'm claiming about myself. I stand with the father who sent me. Again, he's making claims about where, not about his connection with the father, that he and God are one. I stand with the one who sent me. The reason I'm here is because I was sent by God. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. And then they asked him, well, where is your Father? And he says, you do not know me or my Father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put, and yet no one sees him because his hour had not yet come. Jesus claimed to be the light of the world. And so we ask, well, what did he mean? And what does that mean for us now? What, like, what, what, what did he mean? And, and, and what happens now because of all of that? See, there are a lot of different types in the in light in the world, but here's what's always true about light. Here's what it means that Jesus is the light of the world. 
See, light illuminates reality. Light illuminates reality. You see what is real by light, and you see what is imaginary and not real by the same light. See, like a kid in the dark thinks that monsters are real in the dark, but sees that there is no danger when the light comes on because reality is, and reality always was, there are no monsters. Now, like, like, I, like I understood this in a pretty profound way when I first arrived in New Mexico. When I, when I, uh, you know, 17 years ago, oh my gosh, 17 years ago, when I, when I first came down to, came to interview at the church in Alamogordo, New Mexico. Um, I flew in at nighttime for an all weekend interview with the church in Alamogordo. I arrived in El Paso in the dark. I arrived in Alamogordo in the dark. And my perception of what the desert was, was that desert is always flat, 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 brown, 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 brown. When I woke up the next morning and I left my hotel room, I walked outside and I saw mountains and brown, 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 brown. Like, but I, like, I was, I was stunned. Like I walked outside, I was like, oh my, there's mountains, there's mountains here. And the guy who was driving me to church that day, they said, well, what, what are you like, hey, wait, hey, I'm, I'm over here. What, what are you staring at? And I said, there's mountains here. And he said, didn't you know that already? I said, I had no idea. When I drove in, it was completely dark and I couldn't see it. But now that it's light out, what a view. You know, instead of being flat, 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 brown, 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 it was mountains, 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 brown, 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 right? And here, here's, here's the, 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 the picture of this. Light illuminates reality, providing incredible clarity. Because of the light, we can see reality. Because we see reality, we can choose accordingly. We choose based on actual reality, not the confusion of the darkness. We can choose and walk with confidence because the light allows us to see and decide with clarity. And if I can say this, within a world full of darkness and confusion, some of which is put on us and some of which is because of our own doing, we have never needed the light of the world more than we need it right now in your life, in my life, every single one of us has a deep and abiding need for the light of the world. See, here's what I believe. Until the light of the world illuminates your world, you'll never make sense of the world. Until the light of the world illuminates your world, you'll never be able to make sense of the world. Until, until we place our trust in, until we look and see the world the way that the light of the world was made it to be seen, and until he shows up as the light in the middle of our darkness, in the middle of our confusion, in the middle of our shame, in the middle of our guilt, in the middle of everything that causes our darkness, until he shows up and we place our trust in him, we will never have the world illuminated for us. And until the light of the world illuminates your world and my world, we will never be able to make sense of the world. And so here's the thing. Again, I think the, the, the fact that light illuminates reality, which provides incredible clarity, I think that should give us clarity that in, in a world of confusion, in a world of darkness, in a world where everything seems foggy, in a world where, you know, who's, who knows? It's not, it's, not, it's not black and white. Everything's a little bit gray. I think the light of the world brings us incredible clarity in four ways. As we close today, I want to share these four ways. I think he brings us clarity of mind. 
See, there are some things the world wants to tell us are true that are absolute garbage, and you know it. There are some things the world wants to tell us that are absolute garbage. And unfortunately, some of us, because we've believed or because we've been so familiar with the dark, because we've so been so familiar with the confusion, because we've been so familiar with the fog and the gray, 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 we can't see the black and white for what it is. And we're unwilling to call out some things as garbage that are actual garbage. But there are some things the world wants to tell us that are tr- tell us are true that are absolute garbage. And let me, if you're like, amen, let me hit you with something. There are things that we tell ourselves are true that are absolute garbage. See, it's really easy to point fingers at the world. It's hard to point the finger at our own heart and our own soul and our own mind. There are some things we tell ourselves are true that are absolute garbage. And in a world that is telling us things that are th- things are true that are absolute garbage, and a world where we're telling ourselves things that are absolute garbage are absolutely true, we need a mind full of the light of the world, illuminating what is actually true and good and right in a world gone crazy. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul wrote this. He said, For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. And then he said this, And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Every thought that comes into my head, everything that I tend to believe as true, everything that I'm told is true by the world around me, I take it captive to Christ, meaning Christ has become my filter as the light of the world. Christ has become my filter for whether or not I actually believe something as true. Christ has become the clarity of my mind. In other words, the way I I want you to understand it is that the light of the world casts out the darkness of our thoughts. That anything that's untrue, anything that's un, un, that ungood, anything that's unrighteousness, anything that's unworthy as my own daughter's name, anything that's not noble, I push those thoughts out of my mind because I want my thoughts and I want my mind to be consumed by Christ to the point that nothing else, that's not, nothing short of Christ and nothing short of the truth and nothing short of his light gets access to my mind. The light of the world casts out the darkness of our thoughts. He brings us clarity of mind. He brings us clarity of direction. Number two is he brings us clarity of direction in, in a world where we are inundated with options. We have more options than we have time. Did you know that? If you if you wanted to fill up all of your time, you have no shortage of options to fill up your time. We have more options than we have time. Attractive and appealing options that have little or no substance. And we have so many options that the amount of options sometimes becomes overwhelming. And I'm trying to feel like, do I go here or do I go there? When it comes to my life, do I spend my life this way or do I spend my life this way? Do I choose A or do I choose B? Do I choose path C? Do I choose path D? Where is my life going? Where am I going with my life? And in the middle of that, Psalm 119, verse 105, David, the ancient ancestor of of Jesus, he wrote this, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. Now, what you need to know about those two lights, interestingly talking about the light of the world, is a lamp isn't going to let you see very far, but it's going to let you see your next step. 
A light illuminating my path is more like the idea of a flashlight. It's a concentrated beam of light shining. So I'm not gonna see maybe as broad, but I can see very specifically in one direction for a long way. And what, what David is saying is that God, your word, your word, it's a lamp for my feet so I can see the next step right in front of me. And it's a light on my path so I can see where I'm supposed to walk. So I can know the direction that I'm supposed to choose. See, the light of the world reveals our next step and our future path. This is what the light of the world does. This is how the light of the world, this is how Jesus brings clarity into our lives. The light of the world reveals our next step and our future path. He brings clarity of mind. He brings clarity of direction. And if you need clarity of mind, if you need clarity of direction, the best thing that you can do is to choose to give your life and surrender your life to Jesus as the light of the world because he brings clarity of mind and he brings clarity of direction. Number three, he brings clarity of purpose. In Ephesians chapter two, verses eight through 10, Paul wrote, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. He says, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. See, the light of the world reveals why God placed us in the world. We could just stop. The light of the world reveals our why. Like why we're here. Why we're placed on the world. The, The light of Jesus reveals to us what we were made for, why we exist, why you're in your family, in your city, at your job, in your, like, why you exist, why you were born, when you were born, into the world that you were born into, and what you were here to accomplish. The light of the world reveals to us the purpose that we were created for, reveals why God placed us in the world. And the question that we ask, so I was like, well, why am I even here? Like, what, like, 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 what am I, what, like, I'm, I'm breathing, I'm taking up air. Like, what, like, there's gotta be a purpose for it. And if you're looking for purpose, I'm just telling you, Jesus has it and he makes it known to you. The only way you see your real purpose in the world is to see it in light of Jesus. He brings us clarity of mind, clarity of direction, clarity of purpose. And finally, he brings us clarity of connection with God. That because the light of the world came into the world, we never again have to wonder about who God is or what God is like or whether he understands us or whether or not he is near to us. Going back to what Jesus said at the end of the passage that we read, John 8, 19, when Jesus says, you do not know me or my father, Jesus replied, if you knew me, you would know my father also. That to know the son is to know the father. See. This is our our clarity of our connection with God, that the light of the world reveals everything we need to know about God, our heavenly Father. That because of Jesus, we know how God responds to sin. That that God sent someone to stand in between between wrath and sin. That to to take to take the punishment and the consequence. We know how God responds to our sin. We, we know God, how God comes near in our brokenness. We know God's healing power because we saw it in Jesus. We, we know that God weeps when, when we weep because he's close to us and he feels our pain because we saw it in Jesus. That because of Jesus, because the light of the world came into the world, 
we're going to have our moments of doubt. We're going to have our moments of whatever, but we never have to act like it's unknowable to know about God what needs to be known about God. Jesus, the light of the world, came into the world to illuminate the reality of the world and our life and our existence and our connection with God. And in doing so, he brings clarity to our mind, clarity to our direction and our next steps, clarity to our purpose, why we exist and why God places on the world, and clarity to our connection with God by being the example and the point that we look to for clarity of who God is and what God is like. Because he said, to know me, if you know me, you know my Father. That's the claim that Jesus made about himself, that he was the light of the world, and that by him, by his light, we would see everything we need to see of the world. We'd be able to understand and clearly everything that needs to be understood clearly about the world, about our lives, about our existence, about what, about the th- about what is true and what is not true that belongs in our mind that doesn't belong in our mind and about our connection with our Heavenly Father and why He placed us on the earth and what He placed us on this earth to accomplish. That by Him, we would never walk in darkness, but we would see with incredible clarity who we are, who our God is, and what our God has put us on this earth for. And if you need that today, what you need more than anything is Jesus. You need to trust Jesus as the light of the world. That's what he claimed to be. And that's what the experience of thousands and thousands and millions and millions and billions and billions of people over the course of the last 2,000 years have found to be true. That he is what he said he is. That he was who he said he was. And he still is today the light of of the world, for the world, shining a light into the world so that we can see the world as as it was supposed to be and we can have a connection with God that reveals our purpose and reveals everything else that we need to know about our world. If you need to have the light of the world, you need to have Jesus. If you need clarity to live in the darkness and the confusion and the chaos of this world, you need Jesus. And so today, as I pray, I'm going to encourage you, if you're someone who's watching this, who's been exploring and who's been questioning and who's been wandering and who's been wondering, but you know you're living in darkness and you need the light of the world, I'm going to encourage you to reach out to us and and, and to pray as we pray right now, and then to reach out to us, to let us know that you desire a relationship with the light of the world. And it happens as we place our trust in Jesus Christ, in his death as the payment for our sins, and in his resurrection providing the the invitation into new life with our Heavenly Father. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these words. Thank you for your truth, for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the claims that he made about himself so we would know who he was and who you are. God, thank you that because he's the light of the world, God, we can have clarity about the world that we live in, clarity about our, about our connection with you, clarity about what is true and worthy of time in our minds. Again, God, thank you that we can have clarity about our direction and our purpose from you that we can have clarity in a world of darkness and chaos and confusion. We can have the clarity that comes because we are connected to and know the light of the world who shines to illuminate the reality of the world as you intended it to be. So God, with that, would you you help us to trust Jesus, to let him be the clarity that our minds need. Help us to take every thought captive to Christ 
God, would you help bring clarity to our direction when we're trying to figure out in what direction is our life going to move? Which path are we going to take? Would you help us to trust Jesus as a lamp for our feet and a light for our path? God, would you, would you help us to trust Jesus for purpose as the light of the world to reveal and make known the purposes that you created us for? And God, ultimately, would you help us to trust Jesus as the light of the world who shows us who you are, that we can connect with you because of Jesus. So God, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that he is the light of the world and help us to trust him as that. We thank you for his death on the cross. We thank you for his resurrection that brings us into new life with you. And God, today we trust him as the light of the world to be everything that he claimed to be and do everything that he claimed he would do in us, for us, through us, and around us. We love you, God. We trust in Jesus. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.